fundamental drivers of investment are, do you have a stable macro and political environment? Do you have decent infrastructure? And is your population skilled? And those are the things that are actually gonna drive long-term investment and they take time and seriousness of purpose. Economic growth can be compatible with protecting the environment. Getting on a greener path will require raising investment, probably by about two to 3% of GDP for the next decade. And we will have to mobilize that investment, but that investment will have a positive rate of return and it will do a huge amount to reduce risks in our economy. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Manoush Shafiq. Manoush is the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. She previously served as vice president of the World Bank, the permanent secretary of Britain's Department for International Development, deputy managing director of the International Monetary Fund, and as deputy governor of the Bank of England. She has taught at Georgetown University and the Wharton Business School. She was made a Dame Commander of the British Empire and the Queen's Birthday Honors List in 2015. In July 2020, Manoush was made a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. Her book, What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract, was released this year. Manoush, welcome to the podcast. I'm an admirer of yours in the London School of Economics and really appreciate the opportunities the Paulson Institute has had to collaborate with the school. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Let's start at the beginning. You were born in Egypt and moved to Savannah, Georgia at the age of four. Tell us a bit about your family and what brought you to the United States. So I was born in Alexandria. And when I was about four years old, at that time, my father's uh, property was nationalized in Egypt. He was a professor at the university and he owned some land and my grandfather owned a, a large company. And during the nationalizations, it was all taken away. And as a result of that, he... Was that when Nasser was there? Yes. Yes, that's right. And so he decided to emigrate and he had done his PhD in the US and his old PhD supervisor helped him get a job in the US in Savannah in the sort of precursor to what is now called the Environmental Protection Agency. He was a scientist and he worked on research on those kind of issues. So we found ourselves in Savannah, my mother who only spoke Arabic and French and me and my little sister who did the same. Wow. So you then grew up in the American South getting bus to public schools in Georgia, North Carolina, and Florida, as those communities dealt with desegregation. Uh, what was that experience like? And what did you take away from those early years? Well, it was a time of great tension and a lot of instability. So I went to very many schools. In fact, I don't really quite remember exactly how many. I think it was about 10, because each year they were trying to bus kids to different schools to try and get the racial balance better. And so it was a difficult time, but also a time of, you know, you, there was there was quite a lot of attempts at social engineering. I remember in the one school I went to, instead of singing the national anthem every morning, we would sing this song called The Ink is Black, The Page is White. Together we learn to read and write. And it was a way to kind of foster community in, in a tense time. 
I think what it taught me is adaptability. You know, if you're changing schools so often and changing groups of people you're with so often, you learn to get a sense of where you are and adjust to that environment. And I became quite good at adjusting to different cultures and different contexts. And I think that actually helped me in my professional life when I moved from one organization to another. I got to believe it did. And so now let's talk a bit about your professional life. At what point did you get interested in economics and public policy? And what led you to pursue your career in, in economic development? So I think that early life experience definitely shaped my interest in economics. And, you know, I think it was the combination of seeing what happened in Egypt when the state tried to take over private assets for the public good, but wasn't very successful at it. And also the experience of, you know, still being connected to rural Egypt through my mother's family, who still held on to some land. And, and I would visit that village where they came from, where they had been literally for thousands of years, her family, and since pharaonic times. And, you know, I saw kids who looked like me, who were there, who had many fewer opportunities than me. And that that sense of, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, I could have been any of those kids. Why is it that some people have opportunity and others don't? It was very profound. And I think is what is the roots of my interest in economics and development. And in some ways, so much of what I've done in my career has been around the role of the state in economic policy and what it should be and how to try and make that successful. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your career. So Take us through it, you know, your education and then how it progressed, because you were in the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and the Bank of England. So just yeah. talk a little bit about that career trajectory. So I, uh, after I finished my PhD in Oxford, I went to the World Bank and worked initially on research and kind of global economic modeling, and then went off and worked on the environment. I worked on the first report the World Bank ever did on the environment in 1992, and then got lured into operational work when the Berlin Wall fell. I worked on Eastern Europe, and then when the Arab Spring happened, I worked on the Middle East. And then my last job was I was vice president for infrastructure and private sector. And so I did a sort of turnaround of the bank's infrastructure business, energy, water, transport, urban development. And then at the time, Time, in those years, the UK was really at the forefront of international development. There was the Make Poverty History movement. Tony Blair was prime minister. Gordon Brown was chancellor. They were putting huge amounts of money into development assistance. It was a really exciting place to be. And so I was offered to run the bilateral aid program and eventually went and headed the Department for International Development, which was incredibly interesting. And then I got a call from the IMF in the midst of the Eurozone crisis to come and be deputy managing director to oversee the Euro a lot of the Eurozone crisis countries, as well as the Arab Spring countries. And I couldn't say no to that. You know, I think um, I sort of, I guess my career is one in which you sort of, I often put myself in harm's way. And, you know, if something really interesting was happening, I wanted to be there and do what I could. So that took me to the IMF for many years. And then similarly, I went to the Bank of England after a few years at the fund, Again, you know, post-financial crisis, thinking about what the new regulatory framework was, and in particular there, working quite a lot on the misconduct scandals. You remember the manipulation of LIBOR, the foreign yeah, exchange absolutely. market. So I led something called the Fair and Effective Markets Review to try and address that sort of third wave of the financial crisis. 
it brings back a lot of memories, not all of them good, right? But uh, <laughs> well, you were even more in the firing line, I think. <laughs> yeah, but, but I remember when I first became Treasury Secretary, Gordon Brown was Chancellor of the Exchequer, and uh, he was very effective in that role. And he talked to me a lot about the social issues, about you know the carving out of the middle class and what that was going to entail, and and, and uh, talked to me a lot about the development issues. And uh, so he he had a big impact. And then uh, I, I worked closely with him during the financial crisis. You know, he and Alistair Darling and so on. So now let's talk about what you're doing now, because after all of that, and what what a great experience to have before you go to uh, the London School of Economics. So in 2017, you take the helm of the London School of Economics, one of the world's foremost universities for social sciences. Describe the school for our listeners. What is it about the LSE that attracts so many outstanding international students? Uh, tell us a bit about the LSE's uh, recent trends and applications by geography also. So this is a truly international university. Yeah, there's several things that make the LSE very distinctive. Its international character is probably the, the most obvious one. 70% of our students are international. Only 30% come from the UK. And it's kind of been international from the very beginning. We've trained something like 45 prime ministers around the world in about 30, 35 different countries. And uh, and Paul Volcker was connected to the school, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, um, prime minister, uh, two prime ministers for Canada. I, I won't go through the whole list, but, but we have tended to train lots of political leaders around the world. The reason is the other thing that's very distinctive about the school is it's very much of the world. It's not an ivory tower. We're located right in the heart of London. 10 minutes in one direction, you have Whitehall and the heart of government. 10 minutes the other way, you're in the law courts and the legal heart of London. 10 minutes another way, and you're in the West End and the cultural heart of the city. So the world is everywhere around you at the LSE. And it means that our graduates tend to be from very early on engaged in real world issues. And I think that's also very, very distinctive. And that applies to our faculty as well, many of whom spend a lot of time advising governments, uh, working with corporates and various other things in a way that's very vibrant and exciting. Tell us about the size of the school. How many students do you have? And talk a bit about, you know, the application process. So what are the applications by geography generally? So we have about 12,000 students, about 55% are postgrads, 45% undergrads. The geographical distribution is, is very global. So we have about 30% of our students from the UK, 30% from Asia, of which about 15% are from China, about 15 to 20% from Europe, about 10% from the United States, and the rest from Africa and Latin America. So it's truly a very global composition of students. And how many students' applications do you get for admissions and what percentage do you end up selecting? Yeah, we end up selecting about four or five percent of those who apply. So it's pretty selective. It varies a little bit by department and program. Some of our programs are like, or I have to confess, really hard to get into. <laughs> into others a bit less so. It, it is quite competitive. It, part of the reason I think it's competitive is, it, well, obviously we have fantastic faculty. 
And our students do really well. They're the highest earning in the UK when they graduate. They go on to have really interesting careers. So it's it's a very attractive place. And I think we attract a kind of student who's got a very global outlook. For many of them, it's the most global environment they've ever been in in their lives. And it changes their worldview forever. So with so many students competing for the limited slots, what do you look for in incoming students? Obviously, you're looking for a worldview, but, but, but what are the other criteria you're looking for? Our academic standards are pretty high. They have to have really good grades to get in, and that's kind of a minimum threshold. After that, you know, we're really looking at why they're interested in the subject that they want to study at the school. One thing that's a little bit different than in the U.S. is that students specialize earlier in the U.K. system. And so they have to have a sense of what they really want to study and why. And they need to tell us a credible story as to what it is that their intellectual interests are. We tend to be a bit less focused on extracurricular activities in our applications and a bit more focused on curricular activities. (laughs) Once they're there, what is your philosophy of education? What's your vision for the school? So one thing that really characterizes the LSE, really from its founding, is that it has been always rooted in in an evidence-based approach. And, you know, the founders of the school used to spend lots of time collecting data around London to understand what was happening uh, to poverty, for example, in the city. And that very strong kind of empirical tradition is very rooted in the school. The nature of the evidence has changed. We're investing a lot in, for example, data sciences, which is transforming so many disciplines from economics to social policy to finance. But I think that that focus on rigor and evidence is, is, is very much part of our vision of a good education. And then the other thing I, I would say is, you know, we like a good argument at the LSE. People are quite, <laughs> are quite uh, argumentative and believe in rigor and really being critical thinkers. And that's a big part of the culture of the place. And then finally, it's always global. You know, every every course, every program is looking at global examples that, you know, we've made a big effort to make sure that the reading lists are very global and that that students come away with an understanding of a global perspective. So those are the three things I'd say, evidence and data, rigor and debate and and a global perspective. So it's got to be quite interesting to manage an institution like this and You've had an opportunity to manage and lead in a number of important institutions. And of course, you know, a large university is, is, is not a simple task. So what are the, the Manoush Shafiq uh, principles of management? Well, I think for me, there's two things I'd say. One is data and people. So on data in every organization, if you're working in a large organization, you need really good data and information systems to understand what's going on. So everywhere I've worked, whether it's the IMF or at the Department for International Development or at LSE, I have put in place systems that let me know what's going on in the organization. But the second part is around people. And, you know, I always remember an internal auditor once I worked with at the World Bank said, you know, no matter how good your data is, it will not pick up all the problems in your organization. (laughs) And stuff, you know, stuff will be sort of festering somewhere. And the only way you'll ever find out about it as a senior person is if someone tells you it won't show up in the data often for years. And so you've got to create a culture which is open and you're accessible and that people bring problems to you early rather than letting them fester and not show up in 
in your management information system for several years. And so I walk around a lot. I go to other people's offices. I talk to people in the elevator. You know, it's really important that people feel like if there are things that are problematic, that they can bring them forward and not have the messenger be shot. And for me, that's a big part of risk management in a very large organization. Yeah. And it's very clear from watching you is you, you're not only a great listener, but you like people, you engage with people. And I'll tell you, in my judgment, it's hard to be a good leader if you don't have people skills. And you clearly have had a lot of experience working with all sorts of people. And that makes a huge difference. Now let's talk about some of the issues of the day. We'll start in the UK, which is currently grappling with a number of serious economic challenges. Some commentators have recently labeled Britain a submerging market. Manoush, do you agree with that assessment? I agree that the episode of the so-called mini budget was a disaster. The good news is, is that the checks and balances and institutional constraints on bad policy kicked in pretty quickly. And the markets were pretty powerful in sending a signal that those policies were not acceptable. You know, I think the UK economy faces two big challenges. One is the cost of living crisis, which is familiar to other countries as well. Uh, And two, the more worrying one is this long-term secular decline in productivity and the very low growth rates and the the collapse of growth, particularly for median earners in the the country. You know, that, that mini budget tried to address those issues, but really with the wrong policies. Addressing the cost of living crisis is something that should be done, but in a targeted fashion, not in a kind of across the board fashion, which was so fiscally expensive. And then the long-term productivity issues are are really the priority. And it is essential to raise growth rates. I mean, you know this so well. Everything is easier if you've got economic growth. You can deal with health problems and cost of living issues and welfare issues and all of those things if you've got growth. And and the UK has not had a decent growth rate now for, well, since the financial crisis in 2008. It's also fascinating to watch the UK because the parliamentary system really does have checks and balances. And, uh, you know, democracies are struggling all over the world, as are authoritarian governments. I mean, there's some very, very serious problems. But uh, I'll tell you, they don't fester quite as long in the UK as they do in some other places. And I think you've pretty much told us what you think the path forward is here. And uh, it's going to take uh, some different policies. It will. And I think, you know, there was a lot... You know, when I was at the Bank of England, we spent huge amounts of time trying to figure out the so-called productivity puzzle in the UK, why UK productivity has been stagnant for so long. But I think increasingly, the answer is very clear. It's because investment is too low in this economy, both public investment and private investment. The fundamental drivers of investment are, do you have a stable macro and political environment? Do you have decent infrastructure? And is your population skilled? And those are the things that are actually going to drive long-term investment. And they take time and a seriousness of purpose, which we haven't had until. I agree with you. And and, a rule of law, property rights, so on. And, uh, you know, I I think one of the things we're going to see in the decades ahead is increasing competition among nations for investment and for jobs, right? And, uh, And in a world where there's so much leverage, at the government level, that this is what it's going to come down to. And it's going to come down to good macroeconomic policies in many cases. Absolutely. Now let's go 
to another issue you and I both care a lot about. And when we last had dinner, we talked about it. You put together a great dinner on this topic. But climate change is an existential challenge that the world is dealing with. So I'd like to hear first what you think about this challenge and how governments can navigate this tension between economic growth, energy security, and climate action. And then talk a bit about what the London School of Economics, what role they can play. And maybe it's, it's just changing policy leaders of the future, but I'd like to, to really talk about both of these issues. It is clearly an existential challenge for the world. And I think the idea that there is some kind of trade-off between economic growth and the climate is something that I don't believe in. And you know, when I worked on the first report that the World Bank did on the environment in 1992, I wrote the first chapter of that report, which showed that there is no trade-off. Uh, and that economic growth can be compatible with with protecting the environment. I do sometimes despair, though, at the ability of our political systems to deliver the right solutions to climate change. And, you know, there are getting on a greener path will require raising investment, probably by about two to three percent of GDP for the next decade. And we will have to mobilize that investment, but that investment will have a positive rate of return and it will do a huge amount to reduce risks in our economy. And you know, we could solve climate change today with existing technologies if we really wanted to. But of course, the cheaper the technologies get, the easier it will be to make the political case. You know, I always remember, you probably remember, Hank, the, the issue of the ozone hole and CFCs. Yeah, remember that? And, yep. you know, we were terribly worried about the ozone hole. And then someone invent, invented a technology which made it cheaper to use the greener version rather than CFCs. And yep. then we got the Montreal Protocol and then we solved the problem and nobody talks about the ozone hole anymore. And so we need to bring forward technological breakthroughs that will make clean cheaper than dirty. But we also need to put policies into place to accelerate the, the, the adoption of those technologies. Yeah, we, we saw it with the acid rain and the ozone hole. But, you know, the interesting thing, which is a perplexing thing about our political system, is political leaders often put the highest focus on keeping their jobs. And they know that uh, often the public is not really willing to make a trade-off suffering some short-term sacrifices for long-term prosperity. And so even though you're absolutely right that there isn't a trade-off between economic growth and prosperity and what we do with climate policies, the fact is that there's a mismatch between the timing of the investments and, and the jobs. And also it hits certain sectors, the harder and certain geographies harder than others. And so a lot of this really comes down to having the political system work, right? And it seems to be very hard for political leaders to make this right trade-off, particularly when you're dealing with policies that are really in practices that are really entrenched, right? And uh, entrenched in our markets and in our systems and uh, are supported by a strong vested interest. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting to see what has actually happened in practice, uh, as opposed to what theoretically should be done. I mean, economists love carbon taxes, because if you want to 
accelerate progress on climate change. You would impose a carbon tax and all the prices in the economy would then adjust and create big incentives to, to, to reduce carbon emissions. In practice, very few countries have actually implemented carbon taxes at the level needed for significant change. Instead, what they've done, you know, including in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act, which is they've subsidized rather than taxed. So they've subsidized greener activities and that's been politically easier to achieve than taxation. So I guess we have to be practical. The other thing that we've learned is that, as you said, the distributional consequences really matter. You know, the, the French experience with the gilets jaunes, the yellow vests, and neglecting to take into account who wins and who loses and compensate those who lose was a mistake. And so now I think a lot more of the proposals you're seeing around climate change try and deal explicitly with compensating the losers and making sure that they don't block progress. At LSE, we've been really at the forefront of thinking about what policies you need to put in place to try and accelerate progress on climate change. We have something called the Grantham Institute for Climate and the Environment, which my colleague Nick Stern chairs, and they've really done a lot of the pioneering work on the economics of climate change. And we've also done some very practical things, like, for example, assemble all the laws around climate change around the world. World. We have the biggest database on climate laws. And as, as you know, litigation is becoming a new frontier for addressing climate action. And many countries are trying to reform their climate laws. And so we've been working with them to try and help them do that. We've also put together something called the Transition Pathways Initiative, where we say which companies in the world have a plan to transition to net zero. And we rate them and then enable asset managers to use that information to make better choices about which companies they want to invest in. So those are just a couple of the examples of the things that we're trying to do. And very practical examples. Now, I'd like to draw on some of your past experience, because given your experience at the World Bank and IMF, what role do you think these institutions should be playing in dealing with climate change? Well, they have a huge role to play. I mean, we know that we have to raise investment levels and we have to finance that. And we know that we need trillions, not billions. The current levels of investment in to the transition to the green economy are just not enough. And institutions like the World Bank have a huge role to play, both in terms of financing and in providing intellectual leadership and advice to countries on how to do it. I think they need more capital to achieve the levels of financing we need. And I think they need to be more creative, particularly the multilateral development banks, in how they leverage their balance sheets to raise the kind of financing that we need. That's very well said. And I would take it one step further, which I think you would agree with, that the major countries that are the shareholders, that are the owners here, I think should change the charter to make it clear that they've got the funding and they've got the remit to do this, right? Because as you said, it's going to take trillions of dollars and it's not just going to take money. You know, it's not, when you look at, you know, there's several parts of climate change. One is just making sure we have enough affordable electricity for those that are going to need it right between now and 2050. And then a big part of it is just dealing with the with the weather shocks we're going to have, no matter what we do, the climate shocks based upon greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere. And then, of course, decarbonizing a global economy, 80% dependent on carbon-based fuels. And I think something that isn't getting as much attention as it should be is adaptation, resilience, you know, helping areas that are going to be hard hit by weather shocks. And 
that doesn't mean just giving people money to rebuild. You got to build it back better. So at least one of the things that I keep pounding on is sure these institutions need to do more and need to be more creative. And, and you're talking about the practical things they can really do today, right? And there's a lot more they can be doing based upon the current charters. But the big thing that needs to be done is these major countries that are the, the shareholders, I think, need to change the charter. I, I assume you agree with that. Well, I think they need to make it clear that delivering on climate action is a priority for those institutions. And, and I think the shareholders are beginning to be more active in this area. You know, one, there, I think there's two important elements to that. One is that resource allocation sometimes needs to be allocated on a global basis. And so if you're worried about climate change, where you allocate funds from a global perspective would be very different than how you might allocate it from the current shareholding. And so you need to think about that. Yeah. Secondly, you need to make it cheaper for countries to borrow for green investments. And that may mean having to subsidize the lending terms, because if a country is going to borrow to build an energy system, which is green, which costs a bit more than if it was a dirty energy system, and they're doing that for the global good, we should support them through making cheaper financing available for them to, to deliver that global good. Yep. And that's where the shareholders need to make it really clear that that's, exactly. what, that's what they're supposed to do, rather than evaluating them on the, the loan losses they might have, for instance. So now, Manoush, you're also an author. And last year, you released your acclaimed book, What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract. Given everything else you're doing, it's amazing you found time to write that book. And what led you to write it. And what is its overriding message? Well, I was, I have to confess, I was helped by lockdown. So both my husband and I managed to write books during lockdown because there was nothing else to do. And we had, you know, teenagers at home who weren't really interested in talking to us. So yeah. <laughs> the lockdown helped. But, you know, I've, I've been thinking about the issues in that book for a long time. And it was mainly motivated by the fact that I was just so puzzled by the degree of polarization in the world in so many countries. And I had spent 25 years of my life working on international development and seeing the massive progress that humanity has made in the last 25 years, higher life expectancy, higher incomes, better health outcomes. And yet at the same time, people were so angry and disappointed and frustrated. And I wanted to understand why and what could be done about it. And so the increasingly, I came to the view that the problem was that our social contract, which determines how resources are allocated in society, how much security we give to our citizens and what opportunities we give them in their lives, that that was broken and that people, people's expectations about the lives they had hoped to lead were disappointed. And that was the source of the anger. But I also tried to be really practical in the book and really go through the stages of life and say, how is the social contract broken in education, in the world of work, in old age, in the intergenerational social contract between, between the old and the young, and show how it was broken, but show how it could be better based on emerging experience in many countries. So that was the motive. And the overriding message is, we need a more generous social contract if we're going to keep our societies together and maintain support for a market economy and an open society. And if we don't fix our social contract, that political support for, for an open market-based economy will diminish. And all of us who have watched open market-based economies and watched it over the years and studied it, 
know that the rules need to change, right? You need to continue to adapt. I believe capitalism and globalization have been a huge benefit to the world. We need to keep changing, right? Adapting uh, if, if they're going to work and adapting Absolutely. to the conditions and needs. And uh, if we can't have more people have to participate in the success, and of course they have been participating in the success, but the disparities are getting bigger, which is, I'm sure, something else you found when you looked at this, that people looked not only at their own situation, but looked at, at disparities. Absolutely. And for, for large parts of the population, their lives have been stagnant. Incomes have been stagnant and yeah. social conditions have been stagnant for for a decade. And, and that's just not good enough. And we have to do a better job of investing in people and giving them the opportunities so that they too see improvements in their living yep. conditions. Yeah, more have to participate more fully in, in the benefits. So this has been terrific. And I wanna end with a, with a question about young people. So you spend a great deal of your time with students. What advice do you give young people looking to make a difference in today's world? So I, I always tell young people to, to study something you really love because that increases the likelihood that you'll succeed at it. Yeah. And you know these days I find many young people are very motivated by purpose and wanting to contribute to the world, which is fantastic. They're also much more entrepreneurial, I think, than previous generations. And they're much more willing to take risks and do things on their own. And um, and that's also to be welcomed. The, the other thing I always tell them is that not to think about their professional lives or careers as climbing a ladder, uh, but to think about it as climbing a tree. And when you climb a tree, sometimes you have to move sideways to go up. And in my own career, I've experienced that where you, you know, you, you do something a little bit lateral and a little bit different and you learn new things and that opens up new vistas. And I think interesting careers are usually like that. And similarly, when you get to the end of your career, you don't just jump off the top of the ladder. You, you climb down the tree. You do things part time. You explore new, new areas that you might be interested in. And so I think for them, particularly given their careers are going to be much, much longer, they have to take that, that longer term, more exploratory and more open view to how they make a contribution. Very, very uh, interesting advice. And uh, it, it, it's so true because very few people can have a career where you just go step by step, moving right up a ladder, right? They, the key thing is what they're learning, what they're learning and, and, and they will grow and, uh, and learn. And, and, and sometimes you can do something that's like you've done, that's, that it's related, but, but very, very different where you just learn new things. So, so Manoush, thank you. We've covered a lot of, uh, a lot of ground today. And your energy and accomplishments are an inspiration to all of us. So thank you for being with us today. Oh, well, thank you, Hank, so much. And it's been a complete pleasure. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. 
Thank you for listening and see you next time.